This is Tyler and Adam's Pretentious Podcast. I'm Tyler. I'm Adam. Hey guys, we're back for another awesome episode and another interesting guest. I mean, I don't even know where I'm finding these guys half the time anymore, but uh, lo and behold, we found another one. And this week we have uh, Professor Dr. Stryber. Is that how we say that? Exactly. Perfect. Nice. And with that being said, would you like to introduce yourself formally, man, and uh, kind of give us uh, a little bit of a backstory on who you are and what you do? Yes, greetings and salutations. Yes, as you said, my name is Professor D.R. Schreiber, although that is the way that I introduce myself on stage. That is my stage name. Uh, in fact, my real, um, I guess we call it muggle name, is uh, Danny Schreiber. But, uh, so my friends can call me Danny, but uh, D.R. Schreiber are my, is my initials, so that's what I go by for my <coughs> character. But I am the historical conjurer, so I perform an 18th, uh, late 18th, early 19th century style of magic. And and uh, often referred to as the Regency period, and uh, which your listeners might know nowadays as, as Jane Austen, or better yet, everyone seems to be knowing Bridgerton. Bridgerton's kind of the time period that, that uh, everyone seems to be talking about. But that, that is my, my repertoire of, of era. But I'm also a magic historian, so I, I know a lot about all these different time periods of magic. And that's kind of where I focus, is that, that unique little niche there of time between about 1780 up to about 1820 is really where I, I kind of fall in there. So that's basically what I do. And, and, and when I say historical conjurer, it just means a magician. What it really comes down to is I, I'm a magician who targets that historical and uh, old fashioned period of magic. No, that's really that cool, awesome. man. It is. I don't know. This is the first time we've had a magician on here <laughs> and uh, I'll be honest. Whenever I pitched, so you don't like me, so you know it makes. Ah, oh, we've had enough. We've had a magician before. <laughs> well, now now we can. Now we can say that it's really interesting. Whenever I pitched this to Adam and let him know that we were going to be having a magician on, he kind of uh, I don't even know if he wants me to share this, but he kind of like gave me per this perplexed questioning of how is that going to work because for <laughs> audio only. <laughs> But I think it's gonna work out just fine. I mean, you I'm seem the ride, you seem charismatic, man, and you're a historian, so I yes. mean you can you can talk. You don't really need to. Maybe we'll have you back whenever we switch the video. And have yes. you so it's so a funny thing. So quick side story. Uh, back in the fifties, now long before I was around, but we learned this back in broadcasting history classes when I was in college. Of uh, the media, one of the most popular shows were Magic on Radio. And magic and hypnotism and mind reading. And there's also a ventriloquist who did a radio show, which I don't understand that one. Yeah. At all. yeah. <laughs> can, can you try to explain how that even works? I don't understand that one at all. But I would love to do a radio magic show. That would be great because I go, look, and the elephant has vanished. <laughs> that's the thing. It would be great. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's just kind of wild that that's that was ever a thing and i'm assuming that kind of died out with the advent of television or i think so yes it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely killed that one when people realize oh we can actually see it that's a little different it's some <laughs> guy just sitting in his like chair at home eating dinner and he's like oh i just Ta-da! <laughs> did this or that yeah. That's Rick. ridiculous. I'm going to become a radio magician. Like yeah, video you... killed the radio magician. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the radio conjurer. Yes. No. <laughs> no, man, this is, uh, I'm already, I can already tell that we're going to have a pretty good time talking to you, man. This is fun. Um, what, what kind of sparked your interest in this? What got you into magic and particularly the era of magic that you specialize in? 
Absolutely. So, um, like so many uh, early magicians, we, we always get sparked our imaginations early on. And I was the same way when I was in, I want to say third grade or so, probably eight or nine years old. Um, a magician came to our elementary school and did a little magic show, uh, primarily for the, the Cub Scouts back then. And you know, one of those gold, what is it called? Blue and gold banquets. And um, I got to be a volunteer. I came up on stage and was very, very excited. And my parents took lots of pictures of it. And I remember it. I mean, and the funny thing is I actually don't remember anything at all about the magic show. I don't have any idea what he did for magic effects at all. But I do just remember the fun and excitement of him and his stage presence and his character and um, how goofy he was and how funny he was and how the, he just, you know, he controlled the audience and everyone seemed to have a great time. And it was just amazing to see that and um, jump. For, of course, that kind of sparked my interest. So I started to learn a little bit more. I was lucky because my, my mom was a school teacher. And so she uh, had used magic in her classroom. So she knew a few little effects, a few little tricks here and there, and was able to teach and show me some of them, which also kind of kept sparking my interest. And then, of course, you know, there was the television um, magicians, you know, the David Copperfields and the Lance Burtons and those kinds of folks who would, you'd see only once a year because it was a rare occasion to get them on, maybe once a year, maybe once every two years, uh, depending when they got a special on. And, of course, those helped to feed that obsession. And um, then jump forward, you know, because uh, you know, what happens with a lot of magicians is we lose interest through high school and, uh, and you know, just kind of that's kind of normal a lot of magicians just don't stay focused in high school or college same thing happened to me but post-college um got back into doing some more performance more magic and um as a kid growing up i had a a sparked interest in history my parents had taken me to places like colonial williamsburg and plymouth plantation and of course you know the freedom trail in boston and all these historic places i live on the west coast so we don't really have much history out here so we had to go back east <laughs> but um, they had taken me to all these places and i just loved you know some of these you know reenactors and and the idea of of playing these characters from long ago and um sharing that kind of history so i, I always did have that background and um i knew that i i liked magic and i decided i wanted to put together a, an act or a character that merged my two interests of history and uh, of magic together. And um, I'd begun, you know, learning a little bit about magic history, some study of it. Not a lot, you know, mostly everyone who starts in magic history always starts with Harry Houdini and uh, then goes from there. But um, I had done some study and uh, didn't really exactly know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something historic, but I just couldn't figure out and put my finger on exactly how to make it work. And, uh, you know, that kind of, it just, it kind of just sat there and brewed for a while, if you will, or stewed, I guess, for a while until um, finally I had kids and I was reading one of uh, a book to one of my kids called Whose Hat Is This? Uh, not really a Pulitzer Prize winner or anything, but Whose Hat Is This? It was a story of all these different people who wore hats. And one of them happened to be a magician that she was talking about in this book, a magician by the name of Compte, who happened to live in 1812. And he was credited as one of the first magicians to wear a top hat, which is what we think of nowadays as magicians wearing top hats. And I had never heard of this guy, honestly. I, I'd never even, even knew he existed. And then I realized I didn't know anything at all about this time period of magic. And what a lot of magicians have in our history, if you ask a lot of magicians who aren't magic historians, the history of magic, they'll tell you there was some, the ancient Egypts, the Egyptians did magic, 
And then uh, there was some of the Renaissance. And then uh, nothing happened for a long time. And then there was the Victorians, and they did magic. And there was a magician by the name of Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. All magicians know him. And he was the influence of Harry Houdini. And then we're to the modern magic. And that is, that is 99% of magicians are going to tell you that tale. Of that's how magic happened. And what they do is they skip between the Egyptians, the Renaissance, and you know, the 1800s, mid-1800s. And they disregard everything else in between. And in fact, there's a rich history of magic and magicians that fills in that period. And a number of them who influenced uh, the more modern magicians. Um, and that's where I found this gentleman, Compte, and a number of his counterparts of this time period which all began about 1780, 1750, all the way up to about the 1820s. And that's, I, I sparked that and happened to mention it to a friend of mine who was a big fan of the Regency period, a big Jane Austen fan, and told her about this. And she said, oh, then you should really do a magic show about the Regency. And if you do it, I will get everyone to come in costume, all of my friends, and we will have a big party and do a big Regency tea party, and you'll be the entertainment. And that is what really, when you get someone who finally calls you out and says, okay, you're doing this, that kind of makes you do it. And that's really was the, the launching point that um, forced me to create this act and character to go around with it. And um, I dived into the research, studying and reading, not so much about you know, the, the, the tricks, but more about the history of the period, the history of the performers, and realized that, that this time period was incredibly influential in magic. And very much influential, actually, not just in magic, but in society in general, because um, the Regency is right at the end of the Age of Enlightenment. And that was when all of these new thoughts and new things like science were being basically invented. Electricity had just been discovered. Um, many gases that we had never heard of before were being isolated for the first time. Magnets were being discovered for the first time. And all of these discoveries were really leading to people's imaginations to spark their ideas of what they could do. And then it was the conjurers, the magicians of the period, who grabbed onto that concept and said, well, I can take this and put it on stage. And, um, and that's what they did. They took a lot of these new inventions and, um, and put them on stage. Things like you know, automatons and uh, pneumatic, you know, um, uh, pneumatic presses and other things like that, gears and you know, spark-making machines, and all of these things became part of the magic acts. And uh, some of them were just demonstrations of science, and some of them were demonstrations of science mixed with a little bit of magic. And um, there was a real blurring there between the lines uh, of those two. But it really helped to create a really fun era of history. And um, I was lucky that I was invited into this era. And then I found out very quickly as I did my research that there was no other magician anywhere, at least in the United States, that I could find doing this time period legitimately. So I developed a character in that act that actually, um, I'm not going to say reproduces because I'll get into it later, but I can't exactly reproduce what they did. Uh, just because a lot of it, I don't know exactly what they do. But what I did is I emulated the kind of idea or the experience that someone in the Regency would have experienced into my magic act. And um, there's a number of magicians who will do like colonial, you know, Benjamin Franklin style magic or something. But that's before my period. I'm after that time period. So uh, I was kind of unique in that. There wasn't really anybody else doing that and doing what we call basically authentic style magic of the period versus you know doing a modern magic trick 
and then throwing something old fashioned on top of it, you know, doing a, you know, Jane Austen deck of cards or something with Jane Austen's pictures on it. That's not exactly the same. So <laughs> you don't, you don't recreate um, these tricks of the time period. You just uh, kind of source your inspiration from that time period. Then is that it's a cool way of putting it, but it's a little bit, I, I, I have gone back to the original tricks and I've gone back to the original shows, excuse me, and tried to recreate it. The trout, the challenge that I have as an artist is that, um, unfortunately, magic is full of secrets, and a lot of these early magicians didn't have YouTube and didn't record their TikToks of going, hey, hey, TikTok, here's how you do this. There was no expose videos. They didn't write it down. And so while I know what they did, I know what the effect was, I know what the audience saw because it was written about very heavily in the newspapers, I don't know how they did it. So and, you just do your best to kind of take the context clues of the situation and try to piece it together in your own interpretation then? Precisely. Exactly what you right. have to do. It's the same with a lot of these. There's a lot of these um, historians that reproduce clothing or reproduce um, the food of the period. And again, they didn't have recipes or the recipes were things like take flour and take eggs and mix it. <laughs> and um, they would not tell them anything else. And that's kind of what we have in magic. You know, I, I same thing where we've got to figure out what the recipe is. And in magic, we call that method. That's the method that you use. Um, and there is no one method to do any trick. There's hundreds of methods to do tricks. And everyone in the, nowadays, when I teach magic to my students, that's what I'm always pushing them is don't just do what I teach you. Come up with your own method. Do your own way of doing it. Unfortunately, to the audience, the, the tricks look basically the same and I, I try to avoid the word trick you'll hear me use it occasionally but I like to use the word effect instead because most people don't like to be tricked so I like to instead show them a magic effect because that's much more fun to see it that way it's not really a challenge between me and my audience that I want to trick them or not trick them instead I'd rather us work together to make a you know a piece of amazement that's a neat effect like an illusion Yes. And just like when you watch a movie, you don't say that's a special trick. We say that's a special effect. Mm. Um, and so that's what I like to use. So my terminology on that one, I don't know if anyone else agrees. But <laughs> How would you like describe like, okay, like what is magic? Like if you had to put sure. it in so many words and also is it more of like a science or like an art form or is it more like a sleight of hand deception thing like the way you can like trick people's or convince people's brains that something unseen is happening or is it like a mixture of the three exactly it, it, i was just gonna say my answer was going to be yes <laughs> it really is it's a combination of all of those things i really push heavily in my performance of it being um an art form i really try to push it up to the level of an art form um because i think it is i really really think it is unfortunately there's a number of performers out there who really emphasize more the trick and and they call it a trick and it makes them more of um especially with our modern audiences, we have a tendency to want to solve the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So we watch magic with the you know, inquisitive eye of how did he do that? Not so much why or was that fun or things like that. And, and um, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. I just think it's a better art form if you can make it to the point where the audience doesn't even care how you did it. And that's, you know, when we watch it, I go back to a movie. When, when you watch a movie, when you watch Star Wars or something like that, and you see the spaceships flying, we know that there really is not a Millennium Falcon flying in the air. They didn't bring a camera up there and film it fly through the air. Right. We are able to suspend that disbelief for just a moment and enjoy it and enjoy the art of what those special effects are. Exactly the same should happen in magic is you should be able to have your audience for just a moment suspend their disbelief and realize and expect 
that what they just saw really happen. And, um, and that even though we know we aren't, and, and I am one of those people who very clearly says, you know, we are not doing what we pretend, you know, what we pretend to do is not actually happening, but um, we are, as the great quote of uh, Harry Houdini's predecessor said, John Eugene Robert Houdin said that a magician is an actor playing the part of a magician, which really shows you because we are not really wizards. We are just actors pretending to be a magician. And uh, that's important for magicians to remember. We always know it. We talk about it all the time. And I don't know if the audiences always know that, but um, it's just important to remember that we are just playing that part. We are what everyone wants us to be of the magician. And so, um, yes, it's a little bit of all of those things. But the type of magic that, that I do, I really emphasize, what really defines magic for me is the entertainment side. Because there's also the spirit side of magic. Um, you know, the witchcraft and witch and that kind of stuff. And that's a whole different, different thing. That is entirely different because that's, you know, a different spelling of magic. That's um, a whole different category. And when you go back to history, that's the other thing that historians we always talk about is, was the magic performed for entertainment purposes? Or was it that someone was trying to do a spell on someone and actually... Yeah, more of like the in a cult. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's, that is one thing that would definitely define it, the, the difference between it. And that's actually what's really fascinating about this time period that I do in the late 1800s is that's when magic began to emerge for the first time as an entertainment, as a defined entertainment source. Um, it was basically in that 1800s period that magicians arose and said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not in any way a witch. No, I'm, I'm here to entertain you. Let's just have fun. And, and that is why that in the Regency, magicians were being called in to perform at the lords and la ladies' houses, at the king's palaces all around Europe. We were the elite entertainment. We were the top bill act back then. Uh, it was all in parlors. You know, it was always in a small venue. But um, it was definitely something that was really reserved for the rich and the elite. Um, the gentleman performers, because, um, you know, we were a gentleman's act. And uh, one of the things that you'll hear me say, and the reason why I call myself the historical conjurer is by the 1800s, the term magician actually had a very negative connotation. There was an encyclopedia written in 1790s called uh, Encyclopedia Diderot, and um, it attempted to define all the words in the English language. And one of them was, of course, magician. And it defined a magician back in 1790s as an odious sort, someone to be avoided at all costs, born at the same time as our miseries. And so... It's kind of uh, extreme. Yes. Uh, so that's why, the con that's why magicians decided, well, I'm going to call myself a conjurer. And same exact job, same term, but a different name. And that was enough to be able to get the, the kings to go, oh, okay, you're not a magician. You're a conjurer. Come on in. I'll perform for me then, conjurer. Um, as well as they would take on other things, and, and you can see that in the, the, my name, Professor D.R. Schreiber, we often would call ourselves professors or comps or other these things like other royalty titles that magicians would give themselves, again, to separate themselves out from those magicians, because we would not want to be known as a magician. Um, they were really the bad guys, the con men. And the reason was part of that is if you go all the way back to the Renaissance ages and after, magicians were often um, con men, and they would work the streets, and they would steal from people. And that's very, very common back in the older days is what they would be doing is a version of three card Monty. If you know that game, yeah, they would do the shell. It was called the shell game, which is a magic trick. And you can never win the shell game or three card Monty. Just make sure everyone knows that. There's with the ball. 
Right, exactly. The ball under a cup, or they would use shells or cups, whatever, and guess where the ball is, basically. So what, what is the secret behind that trick, if you don't mind? Don't tell us if you can. Don't worry. Can I give you a secret? Well, it, it's a combination. It's a combination of, um, of dexterity, um, that they're palming the ball off, or there's actually, again, remember I was talking about method. There's actually a number of different ways and methods that you could use to, to get that right. Sometimes there's multiple balls um, that they may use. So that you can get it right or get it wrong depending on when they want it to. But it would never be deceived that at all times the performer is always in control of that ball. He knows exactly where the ball is at all times. So if you happen to get it right, it's because he wanted you to get it right. And they usually play that. Their usual trick is they'll, they'll uh, get you, you know, to get it right once or twice. And then on the third time, they'll have you bet big money. Yeah. And that's when you lose it all. And so they, they know their craft and skill very, very well. There still are three-card Monty guys out there. And it's, the three-card Monty is exactly the same uh, trick as, you know, the cups and balls, you know, the three, the shell game, all the same connotation. It's the, the fact that the, 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 the conjurer, the street performer, they are control, a complete control of what's going on, whether they're doing, you know, card tricks or they're doing, you know, cups and balls tricks and they're using sleight of hand or whatever it is. Um, they, they are in absolute control. So don't deceive yourself. I, I was surprised when I was in London performing. Um, I actually saw right on London bridge. Um, there was a, a guy doing three card Monty right below, you know, Westminster actually it wasn't London bridge. No, it was Westminster bridge. Cause it was right below the, you know, big Ben. And, and I was just shocked. I'm like, I can't believe that people are still falling for it today. Watching these con guys do their three card Monty right there on the sidewalk. Man, they were. And I watched it for a little while. It's actually kind of fun to just, just to see how good he is at, at his dexterity and moving his sleight of hand. But um, it's a card trick. It's an absolute card trick. Do you feel like you're experienced enough to where if you see somebody else as a spectator that you can just call them out on their craft? Or do you try to like pretend that you know nothing about it and then scam them? It depends. So, okay. It depends on, we have ethics within magic, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as a member of the magic castle, the Academy of magical arts, and also the society of American magicians, one of our rules is that we don't do anything that it's going to hurt another performer. Right. But that being said, we don't have any rules against non magicians. So if there's someone out there being a con man and trying to yeah. people, that's a whole different category. And um, you have to be very careful, obviously, because you've got to look at what they're doing and how they are. But, you know, the Society of American Magicians, they have a skeptics um, portion, like one of their committees is the skeptics committee. And, and they will be called upon to do investigations if someone's claiming magical powers. And right. um, they'll participate in those kind of reviews just to – Give them our insight. And, and again, be, that being said, we are still human um, as magicians. We still fall for cons. I mean, we, we st there, are, there are some scientific principles that we cannot as human beings control in any way. And um, some of those things just happen. You know, our eyes, you probably know, we have blind spots in our eyes. And That's what I want to ask you, too, is like, do you, has there like a specific tell to where you can tell the difference if it's just a con or if it's just somebody who's really good at what they're claiming they can do? <laughs> well, I, you know, and to this point, um, the, the Society of American Magicians has not found uh, anyone who can claim psychic powers and actually follow through and perform it. Uh, according to their qualifications. Huh. And one of the things that they require is it needs to be repeatable. Um, just like it, it's a scientific principle. And the science says that if it's real science, 
you should be able to reproduce the results True. Over, and over again. And that's, that's science. That's not magic. That's a science thing. And um, so the Society of American Musicians and, and um, the amazing Randy, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, he had a million-dollar prize that he had up, offered that if anyone could prove that they could do you know, psychic abilities or mentalism abilities, things like you know, bending metal or right. telekinesis kind of things, that he would give them a million dollars. He had the bond purchased and ready to go. And to this day, still no one has, has, has oh. been able to show that. And, um, and again, a lot of it is because they follow the scientific principles and say, well, you, okay, great. You bent one spoon. All right, now let's bend another spoon. <laughs> and they, they can't because whatever it is, they, they can't do those kind of things. So, well, wasn't um, the, the spoon bending, wasn't that kind of debunked? And uh, the, the trick was figured out to be the uh, like a pre-bent spoon that's been like weakened metal at a point. Uh, what was his name? The magician, what was it? Benichek. Alakazam or something like that? Like, Well, there was a number. The, the one who really, who really got broke the whole thing open was Banachek. And Banachek, this is back in the, I want to say, 70s or so. Uh, he came across and actually claimed that he could do all these psychic powers. He was taken to, I think, I want to say Princeton, where they had like this psychic research center and they had all of these doctor experts. Him. Yeah, they evaluated him and they said, absolutely, everything's legit. And then after a few months of studies and they went out, Banachek revealed that he was actually working for the amazing Randy had been trained by him, huh. and this was a total con. He says, <laughs> I'm faking it, and I've tricked all the scientists. And, um, and that really was a breakthrough right there. Like, wow, the scientists got scammed. They didn't even know it. That's incredible. So, <laughs> yeah, Banachek still performs. He's still a great mentalist, but he does it all with the auspices of I'm just using my mental power to, you know, to, to be able to deceive you, And basically. And he, yeah. he, he does not claim any special, you know, brain power, but what he's using is power of observation, which is, you know, basically what we call, you know, a hot read, um, and and or a cold read, depending on what he wants to do. He could, he uses both of them, both hot and cold reading, and um, you know, to be able to, to define things and and figure out stuff and look at body language and you know those kind of things. You could be surprised how quickly you can figure out that kind of stuff, and if you do it long enough, you get it very very well, as well as other tricks. And that's the great thing about, um, you know, magic. What we often say is you never want to do the same, the same method twice. So you might see him, you know, bend a spoon like three or four times in a row, but more than likely he's not doing the same method every single time. You know, one might be, as you said, like a pre-bent spoon. One might be a spoon with a hinge in it. Um, one might be, you know, a plastic spoon that looks like, but I, I don't know what his methods are, but he'll change it up enough so that when the scientists are watching for something or when the audience is watching for something the first time, they don't see it again on the second time because it's completely different. So that's what a, I mean, this is a weird minds that we have as, 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 uh, as magicians that we think this way, where in reality is most of the audience would be, I don't, I didn't see it the first time. I didn't see it the second time. But um, th there's an old joke that says, you know, the first time watching a magic trick is, is an amazement. The second time is an education. Do you, because, do you think people... Like what? What do you think people as a whole, like the audience, what do you, what do they get out of observing a magic performance? Is it is it that people in general like to be fooled, or do they like the challenge of trying to figure out what what or how it's how the trick was done? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't think anyone likes to be tricked. I, I still don't. I, that's, I, that's what I'm trying to figure out, like the psychology yeah. behind why we like magic. 
And why right. persevered over such a long period of time as well. Yeah. And it's and it's changed though. It's really changed over the centuries. Um, that's one thing that I think is fascinating is when you look at like the Regency period, the period that I do. Um, I really think the people. I don't want to say they were more. Uh, they weren't suckers. It was just that. I mean, think about it. At the time, Benjamin Franklin had just touched lightning, right? Yeah. And lightning has been the power of the gods. But all of a sudden, they read articles that Benjamin Franklin has Franklin has harnessed lightning. So if the magician's going to be able to shoot a you know playing card out of the air with a gun and catch it, sure, why not? That's easy compared to having to touch lightning. So I think in the earlier Regency period, it was much more of the, okay, sure, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Uh, there probably was a few tricks where they went, oh, that's obviously a trick. You know, that, that's something. But um, I don't know if they had the, the, uh, the puzzlement of how, how do we do that. Although, as I say that, some of the magicians or the conjurers of the period would make a living selling their, their tricks. They would actually sell books about their tricks of how to do them. So obviously there was that curiosity. Some people wanted to know, um, but unfortunately the trick books that they sold were cons and they were actually misrepresentations of the tricks and they taught them nothing. They taught them how not to do the trick actually, mm -hmm. and which uh, again, as a historian is very hard because you're reading it going, that just doesn't work. I'm sorry. I, you know, you've got this great book all about how to do my magic and it's not, <laughs> it's <laughs> But that's the long con. That's the long, that's long con. con. <laughs> well, and you know, a lot of magicians, we know that too, and a lot of, and I do it for my act. We, a lot of us, will sell merchandise at the back of the room after the the trick, and sometimes it will be little magic tricks and so forth. And often people will buy them, and you know they're going to buy them. They're going to take it home, and it's going to end up in the junk drawer. And you know that's okay, that's fine. But um, it gives them that moment to enjoy it, a couple minutes of, of magic. And I always think, see, I guess I think more like a you know the teacher that I am, and the you know, with all my students, and I'm hoping that it will spark their imagination. So in 20 years, they'll find that magic, whatever magic wand or whatever it was in the drawer and go, oh, yes, I used to do magic. And then they spark their imagination and go back into it. Dude, I'm going to tell you a little story about one of those little back rooms with the magic stores. It sounds like a really sad story. It just <laughs> no, 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 it's, okay, I'm sorry. That's, I'm that's like, a weird way to start it. No, it was, I was that same guy. I was in Vegas and we were walking around one of the, the casinos and there was a store in one of them and it was a magic store. And we go in and the guy behind the counter, he was good, like really good. He kept doing this thing where he had a, a playing card and he would just be holding it and he would just casually toss it and it would just spin freely through the air, almost like defying gravity. And he would make it go around him and just like up and down. And he would like, it was so seamless that I just could not for the life of me figure out how he was doing this trick. And he convinces me that if I agree to buy this trick for, I think it was like 20 bucks, he would take me back into his secret room. Again. And this sounds kind of sketchy. Again, sad <laughs> and uh, he's like, I'll show you how to do this trick. So I'm sold on it because I just can't for the life of me figure out how he's doing this trick with this card. It was, it looked supernatural. And he takes me back into this room with my girlfriend. Nothing weird happened. <laughs> like, is it also and, a window? <laughs> and uh, like, it's legit. And he just he's like, some candy on the way or anything. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I, know, I know it sounds so bad, but he's like, all right, are you ready to learn the trick? And I say, yeah. And he's like, all right, you gotta, you gotta buy the trick ahead of time. I hand him my $20 and he's like, this is how we do it. And he shows me the card and he hands it to me. 
and there is a piece of like tack, like clear tack, with a piece of uh, it was it was like this clear like poly like it was almost like a fiber, like a microfiber string that was invisible to the human eye unless you knew that it was there. And that's all it was. It was a piece of string tied to his finger, like a yo-yo, attached to this playing card on the back of it by a piece of tack, like tack. And whenever I tried to replicate this trick, I could not for the life of me. I, I spent way more time than I feel comfortable admitting <laughs> trying to recreate this, and I just couldn't. Is this just another example of one of those false? Like, no, no, that's actually the method. That's one method. But what it really shows you and, and I always – so this is fascinating. You found out the method, but you still couldn't produce the trick, right? Yeah. And, and that's one of the things I always talk to people about. It's really hard to understand, and I, I equate it to, like, painting. And often in magic, you know, I can, I can paint. I know how to hold a paintbrush. Um, I know how to dip, you know, the paintbrush in paint and put it on canvas, but I cannot make a Picasso. I cannot make a Monet. Those are amazing. But I know how to paint – and that's what you have to often think about with magic is just because you know the method that was used, it doesn't mean that you can do it. And actually, in fact, it might actually make you appreciate it even more if you realize it's, as you said, it was just a, a filament attached to a string, attached to a finger. How do you do that still? I still don't understand it. And, um, you know, the, the challenge that I often when people beg me to tell me how you do it and how you did it is, is sometimes you can't undo uh, once I teach it to you. You know, you can't you know, unload. Once you know it's how the sausage is made, you may not want to know how the sausage is made. That's a terribly amazing analogy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but um, you can't undo it. But unless you think of it as the next step, as it sounds like you did, is that um, you made that connection is that, wow, this, even though this guy, you know, he told me what he's doing, I still can't do it. And act, I mean, as a magician, I know a lot of ways that, that, that you do it. And yes, believe it or not, there have been those disappointment moments where you go, it's just a string? But yeah, then, I was a little pissed that I paid twenty dollars for a mat, for a playing card and a piece of string. But I, did, I think the money was more or less to learn the secret more yep. than the actual equipment. That's exactly what it is. And and uh, you've what you've learned the first rule of magic is that magic is not cheap. It's extremely <laughs> expensive. And exactly what it is, you pay twenty bucks and you get a you know a piece of yarn and a and a playing card. And you're like, what yeah. in the world? But it's the intellectual property is what you're purchasing. Uh, the right to enter, the right, right to perform that trick. And then, of course, he did teach it to you. So that's actually, you got a bonus on that one. Because if you buy it online, that same trick, it's 20 bucks and you don't get the instruction. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, what it really shows you, though, is really think about the artistry, the amount of time that that guy spent learning how to make it look good. And that's where the artistry comes in. And that's the, no, the difference between knowing the magic as a puzzle and knowing it as an art form. And um, that's what he was able to perform for you. Is he, he showed you the art of it. And that, you could see, just imagine when you see magicians, how much time have you spent in your back room flipping a card around your head? Um, and that's when you start to realize that we are very dedicated to our art, sometimes <laughs> too much. So, <laughs> and, um, you know, and that's just one, and imagine that's just one trick. So you put together an hour long show, you can realize, wow, you've spent, a. there goes your childhood. I see you've spent your entire childhood <laughs> spinning <laughs> cards around your head. And, uh, I still do it to this day. And sometimes, you know, I'll see a performer, perf you know, doing a, a trick and, uh, often magicians, we often help backstage with other performers because, you know, it's easy to have a magician 
work with you. So just watching some of these guys from backstage is amazing because you can see where they have things hidden and, you know, how they're doing things. And it's just amazing. Like you spent all of that time, you know, hiding the dove inside of your you know shoe or whatever so that you can pull the dove out of your hat later on. Like that is, and then you've got a string that runs up your pant, through your jacket, back up to your hat. So when you pull it, the, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's incredible. It really is. And sometimes to the point where you go, why in the world did you do all that just to get that one incredible effect? And there's some great stories in history of what these crazy magicians have done just to pull off one trick. And um, not only just crazy, but the amount of cost. Actually, I was talking today, uh, one of the patrons of the show I was at, uh, when he was realizing that, you know, every time I did my act, he's like, wow, you, you're, you, have to, you have to get, I mean, I do some rose tricks, I do some oranges, I do all this. And he's calculating up, he's like, you're spending a, a big, a lot of money just every time you do this trick, you're doing it over and over. You're getting a new orange and a new rose and a new, you know, new bouquet of flowers. And I'm like, yep, <laughs> you're spending a lot of money just to do one, one act. And I said, yeah, that's. I think a lot of people forget that, that it's, it's not just free to do magic. We, we spend time in our art and, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, just like when you watch a band that obviously the band members have spent thousands of hours learning how to play the guitar or play the piano or play the drums. And magicians, we do the same thing. You know, we, we, we spend hundreds of hours of, of, of study of our art. And, and then hopefully then we go beyond that and go into, you know, our characters, into our scripting, into our, you know, presentation in general so that we can um, hopefully, again, bring it to that art level. That's what I always push for. Let's get up to the level of, of artist for magic. It's, it's a challenge, but I'm glad to see you had a little experience into it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, man, I, I have – I'm sorry. What were we saying? It's really frustrating for magicians, too, because when we see something all, and nowadays, there's very few magic stores left, unfortunately. So you had a neat experience to be able to see one, but there's very few of them left. Um, up here in Portland, I'm up in Portland, Oregon, and we have none. There's no in-person oh, magic stores. I was really hoping but... that was in Portland. That's uh, really, I know. And then I was like, Portland's probably got one. It I was know. a very cool little novelty that I really never got to experience before. So, yeah, I mean, it was enough for me to be happy to go back into this this guy's uh, strange back room through the weird door. So, <laughs> yeah, he had me sold. Windowless <laughs> man, back room, they're interchangeable. Yeah, that's kind of normal. They always had the little back room. All magicians, if you talk to them, whoever had the magic magic store experience, they always remember going back to the back room because that's where you got to see the the, the stuff that you know that where they you know out front yeah, the they the, <laughs> well, you know out front they sell like you know the fake dog you know vomit or whatever and all their little you know whoopee cushions. But in the back, that's yeah. where the real magic stuff is, and that's where you you really want to know how to do the stuff. You get permission to come in the back, and then the magician's going to show you the real magic stuff and unfortunately yeah. you can't do that online they you know the online stores and there are some great online stores but they don't have that back room so sometimes we just have to a lot of the magicians are great at marketing so they'll sell their trick and then you get it and you end up you know i've got i've been conned a few times where i end up buying the same trick because it was written up differently i'm like this uh. like four of these what are you talking about <laughs> I got, I got the card that spins around my head, and it'll say on the brand new method, never used before. <laughs> Still a string and a card around my head. What do you mean? It's yeah. We now, for me, it was. Uh, I don't know. Looking back, I guess I don't know if I was expecting it to be some kind of strange inner city ghetto Harry Potter experience back there. <laughs> I don't know what I expected in all reality. Like, I mean, it was a card floating around. There was only so much 
as far as moving parts that like we a were poor man's Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, was... But I don't know what I was expecting out of it. Uh, looking back. And I, you know, I will re remind you again, that is only one method. So I know other methods to how to do that same effect. And so he did show you one, absolutely a true method, but there are others. And so as I always, when I'm teaching my classes, I do a lot of consulting for um, theater companies for, uh, you know, adult magicians or basically people who are actors who are training to become magicians. And I always challenge my students that, um, you know, think of other methods. Just because you got taught the one with the string, now you know one. Now think about other things, you know. Be innovative. Yeah, be innovative. Change it up a little bit, you know. Um, change the way things are doing. It doesn't have to be, you know, a string. There's other things you could do. I mean, I don't know. You, know, you, could, you could use magnets. You could use, you know, electromagnetic pulses. I don't know. I mean, well, that is with Matt, with our modern, you know, modern uh, technology, there's some amazing things you probably can do that haven't even been invented yet. So just think about it. And um, the other thing we always have to think about in magic that determines which method you use is you've got to think about your audience and um, yeah. you know, where they are located. I mean, not just geographically. I mean, you know, if your audience is right in front of you, you're doing a close-up trick and there's somebody between you and the string, you obviously couldn't do that trick. Right. And so you've got to think, well, maybe there's another method. Maybe there's another way I could get that, you know, card to fly around. Or um, maybe there's something else I have to do in order to make that work, which um, is where, where I think I push a lot of my students to try to think, you know, think about it. If the person's at a wrong, we call it angles, the person's at the wrong angle, they might see it. They might see that filament or something. Uh, actually, one of the, that's funny how you said, you know, the, the filaments that you're talking about, that the hidden string uh, is, as you probably saw, it's basically invisible. There's no way you can see it. Um, yeah. Even right when you're up close. But fascinating, spotlights, when there's a show, like a, a theater spotlight on it, it gives off a tiny bit of a glimmer. A tiny, tiny bit of a just reflective light, and to a magician like us, we get annoyed by that because we're like, "Oh, they can see it." The audience won't know what it is more than likely. They just think it's you know dust in the air. But we get real picky about that, and a magician doing a stage act might have to come up with an entirely different method because they don't want to flash that piece of of, of filament in the air for a moment. And um, so that's that's you know those types of things that you have to think about. And uh, that makes it fun. That's where the, the challenge comes apart is you go, ooh, so now what can I do instead? Instead of doing that, or how can I hide that piece of filament so they won't see it? Or what can I use instead of a piece of filament that would might might not reflect the, the spotlight? Um, so that's where, uh, again, you know, I always say, because when I, I perform and people see it, and I go, oh, I know how you did that. And, well, you might, you might know it, but you might not. And you don't know. So, uh, you know, I, I always challenge people, you know, just relax. Don't worry about knowing or not knowing because I might and I might not. And but the more fun is, did you have a good time? Did you enjoy the trick? Did you enjoy what we did? Um, did you have a good time together and us playing around and doing this little magic experiment? And usually, hopefully the guests will say yes. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we want in the end. Have you ever been in a situation where you uh, accidentally mess up or don't do a trick? Uh, uh, the situation properly and you get called out. Like, how do you recover from like, if any kind of inconsistencies? So are you asking that did that happen to me about an hour and a half ago when I was performing my last show? Yes. <laughs> Maybe I would say yes. Then <laughs> <laughs> it happens all of the time. And um, in magic, we call that a flash. When you accidentally show or reveal something that you're not supposed to be, we call it flashing. But <laughs> 
me flash the audience. Exactly. We don't use it to go that extreme, but it depends on your act. Um, but um, when we flash, you know, when you flash the method for the trick, basically what we call it. And um, I had that happen this afternoon. I had a little, a little finagle. But what happens is I think, um, again, a good magician and, 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 the, and the guys who performed a lot and, and women who perform a lot, we get used to this kind of stuff where you just have to do a recovery. We often will have multiple, what we call multiple outs, mm. meaning that what your intended, uh, tr you know, conclusion may not be your conclusion because something happened. Mm. And that happens, uh, I, well, I don't want to say frequently, but it does happen occasionally where just something doesn't work. And, uh, you know, you got to be ready you, for it. You got to be ready for it. And, and you know, I, what I have, I'll tell you a quick story. Sorry, you know, if I've, Boring you guys, but you're, you're, fine. Fine. you're totally fine, dude. <laughs> the, 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 the effect that I was doing today involved the audience member signing a piece of paper, and then we use this little 18th century contraption, uh, electric static generator, to make a spark and burst it into flames, and it flies up into the ether. And, and then um, I've handed the audience member, they're holding an orange, and then they, uh, the, they feel a little bit in the orange, and it's supposed to reappear back in the orange. It's supposed to. Um, I performed this effect hundreds, uh, not, probably even a thousand times. And so over the last, you know, 15 years I've been doing this trick. This was the first time today I cut open the orange and it wasn't there. Oh. And I, I had no idea. The audience had to, they, they thought I was, they thought I was being, you know, the, the smart ass magician. And no, no, I really had no clue where it went. <laughs> so what I usually do when I, when I cut the orange open and then I, um, you know, cause you can see the inside and I usually just hold it out to the audience. Remember, I don't even look cause I know they're just going to pull it out. Right. Cause it's, uh, it's either signed a note in there and I just kind of held it out to her. And she's like, what? Like, what <laughs> note? like, she's like, what note? I'm like the note that's in the orange, take it out. <laughs> There's no note in the orange. And I'm like, it's got to be, and I, I literally tore the orange into pieces and shredding it on the table. <laughs> it actually worked very well. The audience was cracking up. They thought it was hilarious. And I had it all planned the entire time. And nope, no orange there. But uh, <laughs> using some quick thinking, uh, I was able to, uh, early on in the show, as I mentioned, I gave out a, a bouquet of roses. I gave out the bouquet of roses to some of the folks. I asked for one of the roses back from someone. I said, are you sure? <laughs> Let me see one of your roses. And I turned over the rose and shook it out. And sure enough, their note was inside of the rose. You're just blowing my mind right now. <laughs> I don't even know how any of this works. <laughs> yes, the, the audience absolutely loved it. You know, cheered. They were just, I got them on my side. But what they did not know is that was an absolute fail. I messed <laughs> up huge and uh, made it work. So. You know, they don't, they don't, what they don't know doesn't hurt them. And who knows? Actually, I may incorporate that into a future trick. It sounds pretty cool now that I've done it. Like, I'd be totally into it. Like, I, I'm convinced already. Man, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to figure out how any of that is supposed to work when it goes right, let alone your recovery. Yeah. And a lot of that's just chop. I mean, a lot of that is just performing chops. You just keep performing and you do it over and over. Um, you know, a, a newbie would probably just throw their hands up and go, oops, didn't work. But, um, you know, I play that off all the time. And that's one of the things that I, as my personality, my persona on stage is I am definitely a humble, a humble conjurer. So I want to make sure that they know that I don't have anything that they couldn't have, that any of the skills that I do, anything I do, if they want to 
spend the time doing it, they too could become a historical conjurer. So I very much am at their level. So if something doesn't go right, if it really does mess up, I go, hey, well, you know what? It's not science. It's magic. And it doesn't always work. I'm going to use that for the rest of my life. (laughs) So come on. It's not science. And, um, you know, and usually the audience has a fun time. Or I have a, if I, so there is a little bit of a, a, a um, idea sometimes in magic where magicians purposely miss something. Now, you've probably seen this tale where the magician will, you know, try to find someone's playing card and they get it wrong. But then they'll find out that the, play, the playing card is actually in this weird location or something, you know. It's misdirection. It's misdirection, but it's kind of a trope that we use a lot. Okay. Magician purposely gets something wrong, and it's because they got it. The reason they got it wrong was because it was somewhere else. And um, I don't purposely do that trope, but I did it today by mistake. But um, <laughs> it worked. But I can see that also being a fun little game to play, and where the audience, you know, they play along. And I mean, it is a. I mean, come on. I mean, people want us. They want us to get it right, absolutely. But you also kind of want them to get it wrong you know it's, you want them to get it right but you know why do people go to the you know the car races because you, you kind of want to see a crash but you don't really want to see a crash you don't want anyone to get hurt but boy it's cool when there's a crash and the same thing people like it when a magician gets it wrong because they kind of look cocky they kind of know it all and they get it wrong and then of course the magician ones up them by getting it even better right you know or something like that and you know i've always seen the trope like a magician will will you know Predict a card. They'll they'll get a, get a card of the deck. Card won't be in the deck. They can't find it. They can't find it anywhere. It's completely missing. And they'll turn around and it'll be imprinted on their back of their jacket, the you know the selected card or something silly like that. So that that is a trope that I've seen frequently used, and it it works. And I think it also really helps because it does humanize the magician a little bit. We're like we can be wrong too. You know, we're we're not always perfect, and uh, and sometimes you just have to go. Oh, well, we got it close, <laughs> and. Um, I, I I don't know. It sounds like you're a pro, even when you mess up. Uh, I don't think anybody in that audience would have guessed that that was not on purpose. Yeah, it's just like you're prepared enough to like know how to recover when you need to. Right. I mean, you know, and again, I, I would think any artist, skilled artist, knows you know that how to. <laughs> I'm sure there's been been times when a painter accidentally you know dropped the brush on the canvas and they go, oh, got cover that one, got to fix that one. That's where Bob Ross came from. Where they <laughs> That's, had the That's what Bob Ross does a master at. I'll just put a blotch right there, and now it's a dog. You know, <laughs> now it's a dog. Whoops, that's adorable. <laughs> you know? So, man, do you? Do you think that there's still a, just as a whole, uh, in today's society, you know, everybody's sucked into their cell phones and computers and just the internet. Is there still a pretty big following for like live magic? I actually think it's, it's, it's bigger than it has been for a number of reasons. Um, for example, go to Vegas. There are so many shows right now that are magic shows. And not so much maybe 20 or 30 years ago. There was probably one, two. Siegfried and Roy, David Copperfield, Lance Burton. That was about it. Mm. Um, nowadays, there are on every, every hotel has a magician or two. And, um, and not even that. You know, every cruise ship's got a magician or two. And then if you go around most cities, you know, a lot of the restaurants, bars, other places, they've all got magicians performing regularly. I think you actually can credit that to the Internet uh, which is a struggle because a lot of magicians on the internet, there's a lot of them who, and I mentioned TikTok before, who like to give away how they do their trick. 
and they, they feel like, you know, hey, I'm going to give you, here's my quick instructional on how to do it. And um, people will Google it and they'll go look it up. They want to know how I got that card in the orange and they're going to go look it up on YouTube and they'll see how other magicians get their card in the orange, which is probably not the same method that I use. Because again, there's lots of different methods and everyone uses their own method. What I always explain is that I use the citric acid inside of the orange, acts as though it's battery acid, and that battery acid then works with the electrostatic charge that we've created with the machine. We send the note into the ether, the electrostatic charge generates and pulls down your note inside of the acid inside the orange. I'm already convinced. That's what I. That's what you know, like I'm 100 convinced. That's my note. <laughs> that's my spiel. And then the audience afterwards, there's always someone in the audience who goes, "But how did you do the orange?" And I said, <laughs> "Yeah, and all right. So there's battery acid, and then there's a citric acid." Because because the audience, did you hear him say it the first time? He told you already. He told you what it is. So <laughs> that's actually very, very, very fun to do. And. I, I, I do that as part again my little my part of my character is that I'm I play the professor because I'm here not to give them a magic show but instead to give them a lecture on 18th century conjuring and science and how they come together and um, that's actually what a lot of the magicians of the 18th century did they they masqueraded as scientists mm. but called themselves conjurers or or natural philosophers was the actual most common term and um, they would present magic tricks, but then use the explanation that it was some sort of scientific thingy or whatever. And uh, they would have, you know, elaborate things that they would explain, but it was just a, you know, it was basically deception. <laughs> the perception is reality. So, you know, especially in that time frame, knowing what they knew and what was available knowledge wise, you know, is like, well, if my, if it looks like that, that's obviously what it is. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, the, there's an old saying that they, they've standard magic for many times. It's not mine, but it's um, you know the magic of today is the science of tomorrow, Ooh. and um, because what we think of is amazing. And uh, here, I'll tell you, I'm going to give you guys you know warning here. I'm going to give away how magic trick work works. Oh. But um, back in the 1800s. Um, of course, back when then theaters had to be lit by candle. There was no electric light. It didn't exist yet when you go back to the you know, 1790s, whatever. And um, there was a story of a, of a very short-lived magic trick, but the magician would – and remember, that's, we're talking usually two to 300 candles to light yeah. a theater. So this is something they would start lighting, you know, usually a couple hours before the show to make sure there's enough light in there. Well, there was one, uh, there was one magician who was known that the audience would arrive and none of the lights would be – candles would be lit. And they all knew, oh, this is going to take forever. They're going to take forever. <laughs> and all the candles were going to be late. The show's going to start late. So then someone would appear from the wing and say, I apologize, ladies and gentlemen, for the candles not being lit. They'd pull out their side on their pistol and fire off a single shot. And immediately all of the candles in the entire room would light and the show would begin. That's and awesome. How do they do that? How do they do that? <laughs> do you have a barbecue at home? No. Well, you've used a gas barbecue. Not allowed to. Gas barbecue works. What had happened is just that that same year, someone had isolated methane gas. Before that, they had never known of methane gas, as well as they had created spark machines, you know, basically like static electric charges. So they knew how to combine a static electric charge and gas. So like a pilot light on a stove. Making a pilot light on a stove. (laughs) And they would attach it to all the candles. And so this little puff of flame would light all the candles, and the trick was very short-lived because within a few years, everyone had gas lighting in their house, 
And they all knew, well, I, I know what gas well, lights are. This, yeah. <laughs> I just go home and turn the key and light the thing. And that's exactly what they had, that's what they had gone, done. So, uh, I, sorry, I gave away a trick. Hopefully no one's doing that trick right now. But, I mean, it's um, about 1860, so it's fine. Very few theaters are lit by candlelight these days. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's how it is that, you know, the science, and, you know, the, the magic of today is the science and, of tomorrow because now it's just a science thing where we talk about that you know methane is ignited by light by, by a spark and we know that and um you know we, if you've ever used electric you know lighter you know to light a cigarette that's what they do same exact concept you use butane and you use a spark uh same exact thing so uh, yeah that's that is one of those tricks that through history has been lost um probably doesn't translate well to an audience nowadays but it certainly was cool to them at that time period very cool so because cool. you know, very, very Ooh, relevant to the film. <laughs> yeah, even now you're like, ooh. Yeah, you just wouldn't want to <laughs> yeah. Don't drag your barbecue on stage to show yeah, the watch, yeah. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and, you know, that, those are the kind of fun things. And there's other tales of history where the magicians have actually sparked the imagination of science to actually do real science. And one of the, uh, the big demonstrations that they had isolated the gas, um, nitric oxide, the laughing gas, as we all know it now, and it was isolated about the 1780s, and, um, but they had no use for it. No one had any idea. They just knew that when people breathed it in, they would laugh and be silly and goofy. So magicians would do it during their magic acts, and they would bring on laughing gas and bring an audience member up, have them inhale it, and then let this guy just be an idiot on stage. And, <laughs> and, and, um, and that was known, and that actually lasted for a long time, all the way up to about the 1860s. They would do these laughing gas numbers, and it was in... Um, I think it was, oh, I want to, no, Baltimore. I was going to say Philadelphia. It was in Baltimore that a magician was doing one of these shows, and there was a dentist in the audience watching this. And the person who had inhaled the laughing gas, I think they tripped and they hit their head and was bleeding. They should have been in pain because there was a lot of, you know, blood and pain and all. But the guy was laughing, just laughing and laughing and laughing, even though. found out that it was like a, a nerve pain agent. <laughs> and the dentist went, um, hmm, interesting. Next forever. And the next day, he had this magician bring in the laughing gas into his dentist's office. And the dentist, under his own influence, he put, it, put the laughing gas on and under his own power, removed his tooth under the influence of the laughing gas and felt no pain. And <laughs> thus started the idea of using nitric oxide to, you know, alleviate the pain and remove the teeth. So. That is crazy. This is like the best history lesson I've ever had. You know, a lot of it was that these magicians, a lot of the discoveries in those early days of the of the of the eighteen hundreds were just bizarre inventions, and no one knew what to do with them. But the magicians went, "Well, let's play with this idea," and some worked, some didn't. And uh, you know, for example, here's another great story that uh, that there was. um, You, I, I don't know if you guys know what an automaton is. An automata, which is a basically like if you saw the movie Hugo, have you ever saw the movie Hugo? Like the CGI one? No, I have not. Basically, a geared robot, if you will. So a gear-powered robot, or you know, an animatronic kind of thing. But these dated all the way back to the 1800s, and um, actually, some of them even as some of the clockwork ones would go all the way back to the 1700s and 1600s. And um, they were basically gear-powered machines that would usually be in the shape of a human or a duck or a frog or whatever that would do an action. And um, 
the idea was that some of these uh, magicians hoped that they could recreate an actual human being out of all of these gears, clock gears. And um, by the late 1800s, there was one that was very famous called the Turk because he was dressed kind of like a Turkish robes and um, the, the, the animatronic guy was. But he was a chess player and he was able to play the game of chess. And the story goes that the Turk was unbeatable. Now, that's the story. When you actually do research, you find, by the way, he was actually beat fairly frequently. But, uh, <laughs> but not enough to be able to have a big deal. And actually, one of the great stories is Benjamin Franklin, when he was in Paris, uh, saw the Turk, and he challenged the Turk to a game of chess and lost. Hmm. Oh. It's all over the Paris papers. How are you, Ben? <laughs> the funny thing was, if you talk to the Ben Franklin estate, there is no record of him ever playing the chess player because Ben Franklin was a very sore loser. <laughs> about it. So there was no record in his biography or anything that he ever played the chess player, but it was all over the international papers that Ben Franklin played against it and lost against the chess player. Well, jump forward a few hundred years. The chess player was, was actually performed for many, many years. And we find out in our more modern time, I'm going to give away another magic trick, that this was, in fact, not a real automaton. It was actually a magic trick. And hidden inside of this robot was a small person, happened to be oh, a man, man, a professional Rus Russian chess player. <laughs> who um, had, he got, ended up, apparently got kicked out of the Russian chess groups because he was a little bit of a drunk. And so um, the, he basically had, was, had no job, so he got hired to become, and he was, by the way, he was a, a, a small person, like a, um, a, a, I guess his word. Someone with dwarfism? Dwarfism, yes. And so he was able to fit easily inside of this small cabinet they made for him and he operated the chess player like a puppet basically but the magician was able to open up the inside of the cabinet and show all the gears and how the thing worked so everyone thought it was a gear powered but in fact it was actually this russian which actually now makes a lot of sense because there's stories of occasionally of the turk acting a little bit inebriated perhaps and the <laughs> over the players so we're, we're now thinking as historians that perhaps maybe the chess player was a little drunk that day. And because um, there there's always a magician who would operate it, who would crank it up and then, you know, trigger the machine to go. And there would be stories of occasion of him kicking the, the box. And everyone thought it was to loosen the gears or something, but more than likely he was probably kicking the chess player going, come on, get it right, you got it wrong, or whatever it was, so... But yes, that, that chess player was uh, around for many, many years. It actually ended up going into the Barnum and Bailey, the Barnum um, uh, Museum in New York. And unfortunately, when the Barnum Museum burned uh, in the turn of the century, we lost oh, no. the chess player. So it was unfortunately did, destroyed. Did Franklin ever found out the secret to it? Or was he just like, oops, I lost? Yeah, he, well, he never mentioned it. So, oh yeah, is it like you said? His estate never said anything about it. So, nope, nope. there was many, many theories over the years. A lot of people thought um, for many years. There's actually a great book if anyone wants to read it. By uh, I want to say it's Stoddard is the last name called The Turk, and it's a full expose of this whole entire thing because this this thing survived from the 1780s all the way up until you know the 1900s. And it was still performed every once in a while. They would bring it out and perform it. Obviously, they must have had different chess players over the years that would do it. But um, everyone always thought that the, there was lots of little exposés written throughout of history of how it was being done. And some people thought it was the magician would trigger it. Like they thought there was hidden levers or something that, you know, he would see the move and then make, you know, dial it in. But 
um, you know, the, they had it was a very interesting way of figuring this whole thing out. But and then there were some theories. Some people thought it was a hidden person, but then it would go back and forth, and it would sometimes be exposed. And then it would say, "No, no, no!" And then they would bring it back out and perform it again. And it was like, "It can't be what you said." And it was actually a great way of you know, publicity of going, you know, people knowing, not knowing. And um, it was bought by uh, many. You know, there were some many people who had bought it and sold it and bought it and sold it. A lot of people would buy it to find out how it worked. Yeah, and then they would think, oh, that's how, and then they would sell it to someone else. And but it was performed for hundreds of years, and um, unfortunately lost in that big fire in, in um, Barnum's museum in the, uh, in the, I think it was the late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, no, he, Tyler is pulling up Google images of this thing, and it is insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, listeners, I, I implore you to check this out yourselves. Like, just. Do a quick image search just to also, see this I just, thing. I just ordered the book on Amazon, The Turk, uh, The Life and Times of the Famous 18th Century Chess Play Machine. That's the one. And that's a great book. Tom, a very, Tom very easy to read. Yes, that's it. Yep, you're right. I just ordered it on paperback. It'll be here in a couple of days. That's insane. It's a fun little book. And he does a great investigation. He follows the entire story. And he actually takes you back. Now you will know what Automaton on because he takes you back all the way through the history of Automaton. And that was what was so confusing because there were actual real Automatons that were actually doing real things. But at the same time, there were these fake ones like this. And they would be displayed right side by side so the public wouldn't know what was real and what wasn't real. Yeah. All by magicians. And that was the great... Again, that's that's that misdirection that magicians are really good at. Yeah, like one of the quoted uh, descriptions of the book is like part history, part science, and part detective story. Exactly, because again, we had to figure it out, and uh, you know that's what magicians do. Right? You know, magic historians have to find out what was real, what's not real, and I yeah. mean, even to Harry Houdini's story, a lot of Harry Houdini's history was fabricated by Harry Houdini. And it wasn't until the more modern age that everyone realized, oh, like, you know, the great story, Harry, who always said that he was born in Appleton, Wisconsin. And for, you know, years, everyone thought that. And it wasn't until the modern ages that people went back and said, no, actually, he was born in Budapest. We have records of him coming over on a ship when he was, you know, a child. And they know these things now. But um, that was not part of his narrative. You know, his narrative was that he was an American, born and bred and, um, you know, he did, he did claim his family came over. That was definitely something he always talked about. But um, And then his date, his birth date was is kind of flexible. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Not so much modern age to hide his age or anything, but he was also trying to fit the narrative of timing of when he came and make sure that it would fit when, you know, he arrived. And so fun thing that, you know, the historians get to do it, but then the, the magic historians are, you know, magicians are, are well, we are not always so honest about those things. Although there is a great saying that magicians, that we are the only honest profession because we tell you we're going to lie to you and then we lie to you. <laughs> Therefore, we are absolutely truthful because we're yeah, telling you. We're we're right. so, <laughs> uh, unlike attorneys, you know, where they say, yeah, I won't lie to you. But anyway, I can say that my, my brother's an attorney. So there you go. So, man, I got to ask you, what do you, you know, you, you focus so much on the the past uh, as far as magic and conjuring goes. What do you th- what do you think the future holds for all of this? Absolutely, I, I I am hopeful. I am definitely an optimist on it because um, there's a few things that I, I look that are very very positive right now. And again, I mentioned again you know, when I'm teaching my students, I. First thing, it's great that I'm getting tons of students. Even during COVID, when everything shut down, you know, March 13th of 2020, I lost all of my all of my performances, all of my contract, all of my gigs for the year. Everything shut down. 
um, and I quickly pivoted onto online and quickly grabbed students on, on Zoom, on online classes. And all the students moved over to online. And actually, I increased them by a, a whole lot more. And um, one of the great things is I think that the, the challenges of the past is that there was a certain number of students who would be able to be taught by a mentor. And that's actually challenging because obviously you've got to have someone right there in your neighborhood to teach it to you if you want to do it that way. But nowadays we've got YouTube and we've got the internet and we've got Zoom and it is much more accessible for anybody in the entire world to learn magic. Um, I still get a lot of students who learn some tricks and a lot of effects on YouTube who then come to me to learn the performance side of it, you know, they, they, as you said, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, they, they learned the trick. They found out how the string was, how it attached to the card. Now they needed the guy to coach them to how to keep doing it. There's a, you know, spin the card this way, take a step back, move your hand out to the left, raise it up a little higher. And that's as well as make high contact with your audience. Make sure you're looking at them. Tell them a story about why the card is doing what it's doing. And, and those are the types of things that um, as a mentor, as, a, as a, a teacher that I focus on when I'm with my students. But it's great to see these kids that now they can focus on their own to learn the method. And then they can come to a mentor, to a, a magician to teach them everything else they've got to know and everything else that goes along with it. So that makes me very, very hopeful, hopeful because I get students who walk in here at age you know, nine who know more at age nine than I knew at age 30. And you know, they, they know more in, in dexterity. And you know, just like, you know, just like with, with piano playing or any kind of like, you know, musical instrument, if you can start that you know, finger movements and dexterity super young, it gets ingrained into their brain. And now all of a sudden they're doing stuff with coins and cards that, you know, us old guys, we can't do because <laughs> we weren't doing it when we were 10. And, um, you know, they're, they're amazing. So I actually see some real hope. I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with because I just, I'm, I'm going to be impressed that they're able to do stuff that, I mean, that almost gets into this, you know, like a contortionist skill where they can do things that I'm just like, that's, that's not physically possible, but you're able to do this as a 12 year old. And you know, my hand doesn't bend that way. How are you able to do that? You know, and they do it and they do it really easily. And then it's, it's great when you get the, the folks who are super creative where I, you know, I show them one time, I show them the method and then they're off on their own going, well, what if I did this instead? How would I swap this for that? And then, you know, I'll, for example, I'll teach them a coin trick and you know, how to vanish a coin or whatever. And then the next thing they're like, what if I did an Oreo instead of a coin? I'm like, awesome, that's amazing. And they would go off and do the whole thing because, you know, their character's a, a cookie. They love cookies. And so they're going their whole act about cookies. And they do one with vanilla wafers. And then they do another trick with, you know, an Oreo. And then I'm like, go for it. You know, that's, that's how you create a whole magic act. And um, it's great to see, you know, an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old thinking that way where they're able to use that creativity and go to that level. And I'm hoping that that will definitely continue to spark, you know, the future, as well as if you watch, you know, shows like America's Got Talent and Fool Us and other things like that. I think magic is, again, getting a little bit more respect because we are starting to win some of those competitions. And, um, and again, that's, that's not really a good judgment of, of magic because those are very um, political, you know, the way, and I don't mean that in politics way. I mean, just, you know, there's some bias that, you know, uh, that some people like magic, some people don't. It's like anything. And, um, you know, America's Got Talent is very, very challenging for magicians because you, you got a minute and 30 seconds 
to do your little act. And that's really hard to come up with a really good trick in minute 30 seconds because if you wanted to make it an art and you really want them to care about what you're doing, that's really hard to Man, get that emotion in you, a minute, 30 seconds. You say that, and it's interesting. Adam showed me this clip yesterday of a quick change artist, yeah, a quick change artist as yes. it's called. And it, I would swear that this chick just walked out of Hogwarts. Like, <laughs> the stuff that she was doing. She made an outfit fly from a rack onto her body. Isn't that amazing? It was like, I, I don't know what I just saw. I rewound it like six <laughs> times when I f- first watched it. I still can't figure it, it out. It seems Wait, is there physically, a vacuum? I don't know. It's it's phys- It seems physically impossible to do the things that she was doing. And I don't expect you to sit here and try to break down how she did her trick. But <laughs> You can text me and tell me. Yeah, it just, <laughs> just blew my mind. And I know that that's just scraping the surface of some of the stuff that people are doing nowadays. I mean, you know, we've got David Blaine out there, Chris Angel, like they seem like they're really pushing the limits. I mean, what Chris Angel floated above the, what was the, the, the Luxor, the, the, yeah, the pyramid. Chris <laughs> the stuff the that they're doing nowadays is just crazy, man. Well, some of those who, they, a lot of them are, are equating back to um, Harry Houdini. Blaine especially likes to do a lot of those stunt oriented tricks where more than likely, there probably is magic involved with it. I actually don't know the method of either of those, what they're using. Um, I haven't done the ex- extensive research on it. But um, a lot of them do borderline the, the magic as a stunt idea, where it's a, you know, a physical challenge, which is what Houdini did a lot. But I think they've got to be very careful about that, because it, a lot of what they're doing is inherently dangerous. And when you get a 12-year-old kid see, you know, getting frozen inside of a block of ice or getting buried alive... They think they can do it, and you've got to be really careful that they don't try it because it, it might be a trick. There might be something that is not actually uh, – that's deceitful of what you're watching, which is fine. That's what magic is. That's what we do. But um, I'm very careful about that with, with, with kids especially, and even adults, because there have been a number of magicians who have died doing very stupid things <laughs> on stage that they shouldn't be because they didn't have the backup. Like Houdini is a great example because Houdini, his wife Bess – was very cautious and told Houdini that she never wanted him to do a dangerous trick. Any, even though it looked death-defying, and that was actually what he always called himself, every one of his uh, demonstrations that he did had his out. Remember I talked before about having an out. He always had a safety. Everything he did had a safety. And For example, you know, one of his big things he would do is he would often chain himself up and then jump off a bridge into a river. I don't know if you've yeah. ever seen videos of that. And it's famous. And, and the story goes in the magic world is that um, you know, the jumping from a bridge is dangerous. Anyone knows that already. It's actually very dangerous. But then, of course, handcuffing yourself makes it even more dangerous. So Houdini, to be very careful, he would focus on the danger of the jump. And the handcuffs and the chains would often not even be locked or not even lock a bull so that they would just hang on him. And there are stories of him having to hold them on because otherwise the handcuff would have fallen off by the time he got to the edge of the bridge. And because that's how concerned he was about his safety, that he wanted to know that the moment I hit that water, I want to make sure that I can swim. I don't want to hit that water and then go, oh, I've got yeah, five. You know. Drown. <laughs> so Bess, his wife, instilled that in him. There was a very popular trick at that time period called the bullet catch, which is exactly as it sounds. It's a magician catching a bullet. And um, that trick over history has killed 12 magicians is, is the tally to date. 
And um, it is a it is a dangerous trick because it does involve a bullet and a gun and a person in front of the bullet and the gun. And <laughs> you know the, that's not a trick. That's real. That's what happens. And so Best told Houdini he could never perform that trick. He said, "Do not do it." And then the irony of it is, a few years later, one of Houdini's best friend uh, ended up being killed on stage uh, by that trick. A, a gentleman performer who was performing in England, actually Scotland at the time. Um, Chung Ling Su was performing, and um, he was shot and killed on stage. Although what the big headline was at the time is that uh, when he passed, when he was shot and fell to the floor, Chung Ling Su, who was a Chinese conjurer and spoke no English, when he fell to the floor, shouted out in English, I've been shot in perfect American English. And the big headlines the next day was that, in fact, Chung Ling Su was not a Chinese conjurer, but was, in fact, William Robinson, an American who had been posing for the last 10 years in England as a Chinese person. What? <laughs> wow, that sounds worse than Mickey Rooney and uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and uh, there's some actually great stories about Chung Ling Su because there, he copied an actual real Chinese conjurer named Ching Ling Fu, which sounds a lot like it. And, of course, he confused the British people because they thought he was Chung Ching Ling Fu, but he was Chung Ling Su. And so that's why he would be, you know, and, and at the time, Fu was traveling around America, so Su went to England, and the British figured, oh, it's the same guy. But they wasn't. It was a completely different act. Although the story goes that Fu eventually heard about this and, you know, took off to go to England to challenge this guy to basically say, you've stole my act. You know, you've, what are you doing? And he did, and uh, they did one of these, what they called newspaper challenges. This is a big thing they used to do in the early 1900s where um, they would go to the newspaper office and challenge each other to a contest. And they did a conjuring contest. And the newspaper at the time actually said that Chung Ling Su was the better conjurer oh, and beat yeah. actual real Chinese conjurer. So, but, the, but it actually goes to the extreme to show you that this gentleman, um, William Robinson, lived his entire life with never speaking English, only speaking gibberish. He did not speak Chinese or Mandarin or anything. <laughs> He carried a cadre of actual Chinese people who would translate for him from his gibberish into English, and um, but lived his entire life as though he was, you know, his art was, I am a Chinese conjurer. He had to keep that illusion alive everywhere he went. Even when he was off stage, when he was in his hotel, um, you know, when he was, you know, at his home, he had to be Chung Ling Su. Although that you'd see these great writings from him back and forth between Houdini and him, where he's writing his will, you know, he'd sign it. You know, dear, you know, he signed it, you know, with love from Will. And that was, you know, um, so obviously he still was himself, but had to play that character to be able to keep that entire deception, that illusion alive for his entire life. But unfortunately he did. Yeah, he did die during uh, during the bullet catch um, demonstration on stage. So, yeah, quick wow. little story about the dangers wow. of magic. Yeah. That was uh, I've never Never heard of that. Uh, Adam, have you ever heard of this guy Not, before now? This is the very first time. So it's no. a really good book <laughs> about him written by a uh, uh, historian named Jim Steinmeier. Um, and I want to call it, oh gosh. But it's a Chung Ling Su book. Um, I want to see yeah, if I'm I... intrigued by that. I'm going to jump. It's actually, um, Steinmeier is amazing. Steinmeier is a professional magician who designs magic for theater, for Broadway. Huh. So if you've seen uh, Beauty and the Beast on stage or Mary Poppins or a number of those film, uh, I'm sorry, film adaptations on theater on Broadway, he designed all of the effects. So like 
uh, in the Broadway version of Beauty and the Beast, the, the Beast, beast back into the prince. Right? That's a magic trick. Mm. Total magic trick. So you had to do some way of getting the, the, the actor playing the Beast to change into an actual human. So Jim Steinmeier designs that. And he yeah, designed all the video that It's fantastic visually. Yes. So that's a Steinmeier illusion. And, um, but he's also a historian. And he loves to do backwards work tricks. So he finds out what they're doing and then does all of that How investigation. To lead to that point. Yeah. And so he wrote that book. The Chungling Sioux book is a great book. And another really good book, um, if you want to follow up on more of this, is um, the um, book, book you wrote about Houdini, which was um, Hiding the Elephant. Hmm. And talks all about Houdini's tricks. You know, big, big spoiler alert. You will learn lots of methods out of the Jim Steinmeier books. He will teach you, not teach you, but he'll show you ways to figure out how these things work. And um, it's a great insight into a magician's mind because you can see how you figure these things out and, and you know, take the clues and the critical thinking skills. Yes. And it's also bizarre critical thinking skills when you start looking at the magicians really spend that much time worrying about. <laughs> You know, is it better in the left hand or right hand? And the answer is yes, we actually do. And it's really sad. But, um, and it's just stuff the audience will never know. Never. I always joke with my wife because I'll ask her, so does this look better on the left or right? It's like, I don't, I can't tell the difference. <laughs> yeah, the good. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to us, I'm like, no, it's better if I have it this way. And so, yeah, we, we get kind of nerdy into that little thing. Those, <laughs> when it comes to classic magician stories, like, like the guy who, you know, fatally, got shot yes. uh, during a show. But I'm saying, like, uh, in reference to movies like uh, The Illusionist or The Prestige, like, do you think those hold up accurately? Definitely. There's, so the, um, so the, the inner animosity but uh, between, like, dueling magicians. Oh, yes. Yeah. They are hitting on a number of different things. Now, of course, The Prestige uses some, you know, mysticism and things that can't right. happen. But um, The Illusionist Every single thing you see in The Illusionist can be and was historically done on stage. Huh. Absolutely every single thing, even up to the point, if you remember the movie where the ghost appeared, totally, totally done and can still be done. Now, they did use some CG effects for Hollywood purposes because, um, you know, our eyes are not nearly as good as cameras. Cameras are really, really good at picking up things. So magicians, we take advantage of that when we're with a live audience, which is often why you can't do the same thing for a live audience as you can on a TV audience. Right. Because like you said, that, that filament thing that you mentioned before, right. where you see that little string for the card, yeah. cameras can see those. A video camera can pick it up. Our eyes can't. So you've got to think of another method to do those kind of things. So um, they did certainly use some CGI effects in, in the prestige, but I, I believe Ricky Jay was one of the magic consultants on that film and was very, very careful about every single effect in that whole film that everything could be done. I think the only thing that actually couldn't was the butterfly necklace. If I remember correctly, um, there's a portion of the butterfly necklace. has a, It's actually not even a magic trick. It's just a necklace that has a little secret compartment apparently the hinging on that would not work. Okay. They had to fake that one. But, you know, the idea, the concept of having hidden compartments in necklaces was very common, and, you know, that happened all the time. But, yes, that was exactly right. The illusionist, I'm sorry, the, um, that was the illusionist. The prestige, on the other hand, they have the homage to many, many of these ones. Actually, Chungling Shu is mentioned, not, 
mentioned by name, but they talk about a, a Chinese conjurer in that movie who walks his entire life bent over. If you remember that whole thing. So can, it's been a while since I've seen it. it there's, a, there's a part in there where they talk about a magician who lives his entire life hunched over because one of his tricks involves him carrying a bowl of goldfish between his legs, which requires him to bend over to ca carry it. So therefore, in order to do that one trick, the guy has to be able to bend over. And so he stays bent over his entire life. Huh. So he could do the one trick. And they, they mentioned it in there about the Chinese, you know, one Chinese conjurer who does it. Which one of the two is your favorite? I personally like The Illusionist. That's my pre preference as well. I kind of want to go back and watch both I of these watch movies. Both of them. That, it's one of those movies that come out at the same time about similar topics, you know. Yeah, and I've lectured, it's funny, a, a number of conferences, I've, I've lectured actually on those movies. We watch the movie and then I lecture all about what's real, what's not, what happens and how things work. And Do you give lectures like open to the public or is this like in a... Absolutely. Like, it's funny, when I first started doing lectures, I thought it was going to be for magicians. Uh-huh. Um, quickly realize the magicians appreciate it. They're fine. Whatever. You know, they're like, okay, whatever. Um, you know, anybody who's trying to teach you history of your art or of your, of your job, you know, how much do they want to hear? They're like, yeah, I've heard all the history. I'm fine. But the public, uh, they're the ones who are get really fascinated by it because magicians were, were, we're characters. We're weird. And, um, you know, the fact that people would, you know, spend hundreds and thousands of hours doing something mundane, like flipping a card in the air and catching it, they're like, why would someone do that? And the reason is because it's cool and we can do it. And, uh, you know, there's a, a great story in history. Um, back, it actually goes all back to the 18th century where a magician was performing. He knew he was performing for royalty in the town. And he had gone to the town a few days in advance to check out the, the location. And, you know, obviously travel was a lot slower. So you usually get there in advance. You don't, you don't, not like our, uh, nowadays where we arrive the day over the night before. They got there a week or two in advance. And he happened to be going getting his watch cleaned, and he found out that the lord of the manor was getting his watch cleaned at the same time at the same watch shop. And he asked the watch owner what it would cost to make an exact replica of the lord's watch. And he found out the dollar amount, and he said, can you get it done in you know, three or four days? I've got the show in five days I need it for. And so they rushed it, and it cost him a few thousand dollars to get this watch made. And uh, while, so then he went on to perform at the Lord's house and uh, he asked to borrow the Lord's watch. And then he took the watch, did a switch. So he basically took the Lord's watch and in instead brought out the fake watch using the hammer, smashed the watch to pieces, glass flying everywhere. The watch was obviously destroyed and right there in front of it. And then of course, using some manipulation and some dexterity was able to bring the watch back perfectly restored and returned back to the Lord. And the amount of effort that went into that one trick that he was hoped that would work. Well, I mean, of course, you know, it, it was written about and everyone thought it was amazing and, you know, a great thing. But just when you hear these stories that this guy went through all of that effort and cost and time and just to be able to do one trick for one guy once. Yeah, if that would have went wrong, like he could have been dead by now. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Could have been very, very bad. And what if the Lord didn't want to give him his watch? Or, you know, or the whatever. Whole, the whole show's blown at that point. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, like, the funny thing is when you learn more and more about magicians, that is a necessary evil. Sometimes that happens, where you've set tons and tons of stuff up, and it just never happens. Like, oh, well, oh, well. 
fine. You know, I've got the uh, the ace of spades that's hidden inside of a, you know, a carafe of wine that's sitting on the shelf, the fourth from the left. And if no one picks the ace of spades, we're just never going to use that. You know? Just in case. It's, it's there, just in case. And, and you think that's funny, but it's actually true. We do those really silly things. I think it's really forgetting about it and be like, and somebody just suddenly finds like, Oh yes, you know, like, exactly <laughs> yeah. as I No, that's that's crazy, man. I I gotta say, I like really respect everything you guys do, especially after you kind of painting a little bit more of the backstory behind what exactly goes into all of this. It's just crazy. And the funny thing is, that there's a number that actually right now on on social media, there's a debate in the magic community because of a lot of these videos that are exposing magic or giving away secrets. And there's a lot of magicians who protect their secrets, you know, like they're gold and, and they don't want anyone to see them or know them. And um, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to give away secrets. And if you, you guys know Penn and Teller, the, yeah. the two magicians, they're very notorious for giving away how they do it. And that's part of their shtick. You know, they're the bad guys of magic. That was their shtick for the long time in the 80s. And that's what they did. They, they would show people how the magic was done. But even then, when they do, I still get to the point where it's, I think that's actually more fascinating sometimes when you know how it's done and you realize that, oh my goodness, that is really, really hard. Yeah, a lot of work goes into this. Movie. You really appreciate that inner workings of the machine and, and, and you know what it is that they've done. That's when you can really, you know, it's even a more wow factor. It's a different wow, but it's a, there's certainly a, you know, appreciation of all of the time and skill and effort that goes into it. And uh, because I often get asked the question, as a magician, do you still appreciate when you see magic? You know, because you know how it's done. As a magician, I know how it's done. You know, does it does it ruin it for you? And my answer always is no. It actually makes me appreciate it even more because I know what the amount of time and effort and skill that's gone into it. And again, watching magicians from backstage sometimes is just amazing. When you're like, I can't believe you're really doing that. Um, you know, I don't want to give this away, but there's a magician who does an act where he does a bunch of productions where he you know, has things appear all over the place. He has about a five-minute act to music and um, probably, a, I've never even counted, but over a hundred things pop out of nowhere. Just like midair, just like he's grabbing stuff and you know, he grabs a pickle, then he opens it, then he grabs a ketchup packet that comes out, pours the ketchup packet on the pickle and the pickle turns into a hamburger. And you're like, how is he doing this? And I was working backstage on one of his shows. He's a big international traveler. He traveled through Portland once. Mm. And um, mm. I was helping him. I looked and his, he was loaded with all of this stuff. I'm like, I can't get anywhere near you because you are just like a walking time bomb of things ready to explode and go off. And it's, that's what the preparation that he does for his art is he just knows where all these things are and how to make them produce. And um, it's just amazing. It, it's amazing then to watch it on stage and go, I can't believe you just did all of that in five minutes, of course. And it takes him an hour to load his, his what we call load to prep all of his stuff beforehand. Mm. And um, yeah, and it's just amazing to see that kind of dedication, that kind of skill. And of course, he had to figure out the way to do it because there's an order. If you, if you don't do one, you can't do two. And if you don't do, you know, if you do two before you do, uh, you know, if you do five before you do three, then six won't trigger. And, you know, it's just, wow, that's just incredible that they can do all that. And of course, you know, where are you going to hide all these things? You got to hide it somewhere on his body. He's <laughs> got it all over the place. And, um, but again, you know, it's that seeing it from backstage is even, even cooler, at least to me. I think it's cooler. Although my brother, who I mentioned before, is a Juris Doctorate, you know, got his PhD 
and all these other initials after his name goes on forever and ever. Brilliant, smart, smart person. Every time I perform for him, he goes, don't tell me how you do it. I've already got too much information in my brain. Don't want to know. And so, you know, that's, that's the way other people are too. They're like, don't tell me. I want to be amazed. I want to have that, you know, a little bit of amazement for a moment. Dude, this is kind of, I don't know if this is like ignited a spark again, but after we finish up with you, I may very well go dig out that playing card and filament <laughs> string and try to get back on the, on the magic wagon or whatever you might <laughs> want to call it. The magic wagon. <laughs> the magic wagon. Yeah, we'll call it that. Feel like that sometimes. <laughs> it's inspiring, the magic man. Wagon, it's, yes. it's inspiring, man. And uh, the amount of de- dedication, as I said, that goes into this, it, huge amount of respect for that. And, Dude, I feel like we could we could talk about this for hours. Unfortunately, we only have about 20 minutes left, and I don't want my recording to cut off on us. So <laughs> I want to be able to do a proper goodbye and everything with you uh, for your benefit, our benefit, and the listener's benefit. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I, I mean, we're going to have to have you come back, man. I didn't know how we were going to fill an hour with a magician <laughs> audio only, but here we are pushing two, and... I don't want it to stop. <laughs> so, you didn't had a magic yeah, background. It's even better that now you know we can talk shop. So yeah, no, th- th- this is uh, this is just awesome, and we would love to have you come back. Uh, we'll try to cycle you back in for next season if you're down for it, man. I'd love to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with that being said, uh, before before the the recording auto stops on us, um, <laughs> do you have any last minute words that you want to kind of? send out to the listeners on just, you know, if they just in general or maybe aspiring conjurers. Well, two things, inspiring conjurers. Absolutely. Keep at it. Keep trying. That's the, the biggest challenge is folks give up after the first try. And, you know, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. So keep trying. Uh, I have a, one of my uh, kids, uh, mentors, actually a music teacher, used to tell them that practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So you need to just keep practicing to build that and make it permanently installed in your brain. And then, you know, you can go to a mentor and they'll help you make it per- perfect. That's, you know, that, that's, that'll come with time. But practice, practice, practice. Keep working at it. Obviously, some things come easier for others. It's really fascinating when you teach is that I never know what trick is going to, you know, what, what effect or what movement's going to pick up on the kids. I didn't, I've never have a clue. Sometimes I teach them, teach them the most simplest thing and they struggle with it. And then I teach them the most complicated trick I can think of. And then they get it in a second. I, I can never figure it out because again, you know, everybody has different abilities. Everyone has different learning abilities and different ways of think, seeing things. And I think that's actually what's really fun when I teach is because from, from class to class, when I have a group of kids, each kid will have one or two, and I say kid, it, it can be adults too, but they'll have one or two things that they'll be great at and one or two that they won't be. And that's absolutely okay. That is the way it should be. And those things that you're not great at, I always encourage them to keep trying. Don't give up just because you didn't give the first try. Don't give up. Keep trying it. Um, I really encourage them to try to learn this, this skill. I, I don't really focus on the trick as much as I do the skill so that, you know, you can, they can then, you know, I, I always equate it like I, I, I will teach them how to use the hammer. I'm not going to, you know, build the house for them. It's their job to now build the house or do whatever you want to do with the hammer. Maybe you throw it at someone. I don't know. But I will show them the proper use of the hammer. And that's just the tool because a lot of what 
the dexterity and the sleight of hand and that kind of stuff. That's just a tool. You know, the, the trick is up to you to make and build. So don't give up on that dexterity, that thing. And, you know, again, just like with uh, anything that involves the use of your, your, your body, you know, like, a, like a sport or something, you know, some people are going to get it right away. Some people are going to take a little bit more practice and, um, you know, work, work on that thing. Then as far as the audience goes, everybody else, please, please, please support live magic. Absolutely go and see a magician. Um, search it out. Hire them for your corporate parties, for your private parties. Um, you know, try to get you know, magicians in there. You know, we have a challenge in the magic world, and I get this a lot when I go to a, you know, a corporation or something and say, hey, you want to have a, a magician? You know, would you like the historical conjurer to come for your Christmas party or whatever? And they say, no, we had a magician four years ago. We don't know. And the problem is that every magician is different. And it's like saying, you know, we had a band once at our party. <laughs> that doesn't describe anything because every band is different. Every singer is different. And the same way, every magician is different. And um, so I always encourage people that, you know, talk to the magician before you book someone. Find out what they are. Find out the rapport. Know what you want from them. And, and uh, I, I'm actually a big I don't perform a lot, believe it or not, for kids. My, my act is a little bit on the dangerous side. I have, you know, as I said, flames and sparks and, and guns and other things. So I am not what I would yeah. call a kid magician. But <laughs> if I get a call from someone that says, hey, well, I got a three-year-old who wants a birthday party magician, I refer them to a great birthday party magician in town. Because I got some, there's some great people who do some incredible birthday acts. And, and one of them happens to be that magician that, you know, 25, 30 years ago, I saw when I was a little kid who still performs here in Portland. It was amazing that I came back here to Portland after 25 years. And um, my parents, I you know, told my parents I was you know, doing this act. My parents sent me the photo of that magician that I told you about way, way back in the beginning of when I started. And they, they had written on the back of it the name of the magician. I had no clue what it was. Bob Eaton. And I joined the local magic club here in Portland. And guess who the secretary of the magic club was? Definitely not Bob, Bob Eaton. Eaton. <laughs> and I went up to him like, Bob, you influenced me when I was nine. And of course, he was, you know, he's a little older now. Yeah. <laughs> and Bob was like, oh, I feel a little old now. But um, I had the picture and showed him. He goes, yeah, I was much younger then. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, you know, funny little things, how that comes back around that um, I got to. And I didn't even know. It's funny because I, I had known him for a while. And when my parents finally sent me the picture of it and, you know, it went, oh, Bob it was it was magic with Bob. You're right. That's who it was. And, <laughs> uh, I, I embarrass Bob, but Bob's still performing to this day. Bob has performed over nine thousand shows. Wow, birthday parties basically in, in the Portland area, and um, you know, still doing strong, still doing great, strong magic. And when people say they want a you know a kid magician, I say call Bob Eaton or Kevin Witt. Kevin's my other friend that I, I work you know send people over to all the time. And the same way. It's neat is that then if they if somebody says they want a, a I do a lot of steampunk magic because of my time period and so I often will get the call for the steampunk magician or they want like a old fashioned magician that's where my call comes in they go oh you want an old fashioned magician well that's Danny although it's I also work very very well with anyone who wants an upscale magic if you want something where someone comes in coat and tails and is a little more sophisticated dignified. yeah dignified yeah then. You know, I'll come in there because I'm not going to come in a clown suit, you know, with, uh, you know, a big red nose or something. But if you want that, there's magicians who will do that, too. So just keep that in mind. That's what I tell the public is there's a lot of magicians who can do lots of different skills and styles. And we're not all the same. Everybody's a little bit different. 
But, um, you know, look into it. Support Magic, please. We're, we're all, after, after this last year and a half of COVID, it's been tough. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of performing artists didn't pivot well. And, um, you know, they weren't comfortable going on Zoom. I, on the other hand, pivoted really quickly. My, my background is in television production. So it wasn't hard for me to get in front of the camera and um, start performing all over the globe. But uh, that was the fun thing of COVID. I got to perform. I performed in Australia, which was 3 a.m. my time. Um, which was weird having jet lag, even though I never left the home. That was very weird. Um, and my wife and I, my wife's a performer and she's a dancer. And we were both were in that same show. And we're like, we're, why are we jet lag for like the next three days after that act? But cause it was just weird. But yeah, we, and the great thing is we have that. I know one of them, we did the same day. We did a, an act in, um, in the UK and then one in Australia and then one in New York all in the same day. You couldn't do that. Without COVID, I, that's the only way I can do it. I can do it on Zoom. I can be in three countries at one time. So that was fun. I don't want to do it again, though. I don't want COVID to come back. <laughs> no, never. Man, this, <laughs> is, this is awesome. And you, you are just a, a great guy. You're fascinating. You really know your stuff. I mean, I, I think you're great. I've learned so much about magic tonight. Uh, it's kind of sparked a new interest like i said i'm gonna dig that card out i'm gonna go watch the illusionist <laughs> i watch the prestige we can i that. i yeah. hope that our listeners tonight enjoyed this show as much as i did and i mean adam you got a kick out of this i mean it seems like you did i got, anyway. I got several kicks out of it <laughs> and and for you man i hope that you had a good time coming absolutely here to talk to us thank you so much i love sparking other people's imaginations and getting you interested in it and if your audience wants to find out more about me i am on the web i'm at uh, historicalconjurer.com and it, either way you can spell it with an or at the end or an er at the end it'll get you to the historical conjurer either way that was a, a big debate when i was <laughs> was choosing my name is we couldn't figure out was it or or er both are correct <laughs> so historicalconjurer.com and you can find out about my, my, my classes. I'm still teaching lessons online still at this point. I'm still all on Zoom for all classes and I still am doing performances on Zoom and all platforms. I, I, don't, I say Zoom, but I mean that more of the generic Zoom because uh, <laughs> I've done Skype and Web, Web, WebEx and StreamYard. I, there's so many. I don't know, uh, but I still on all of those and, and uh, but check me out there. I've got merchandise for, for sale on my website as well. And I'm also on the, the social medias on Facebook as Historical Conjurer, as well as Professor D.R. Schreiber. So you can find me there and just say hi if you're, if you're interested and find out more about it. But I, as you can tell, I love to talk about magic and I love to talk about magic history and I love to talk about history in general. So, you know, hit me up. I'm always interested to talk to folks. Hell yeah, man. Hey, this is uh this has been a blast, man. And to our listeners, check this guy out. Um, I'm definitely gonna go scope everything out after we get out of here. And yeah, like I said, you've kind of uh sparked a new interest in it after talking to you, man. So thank you for that. And like I said, I hope the guests dug it. And with that being said, man, I just wanted to say goodnight to you. We're gonna try to wrap this thing up in the next eight minutes and eight seconds that we've got before it cuts us dry but this has been a blast so thank you dude thank you both thank, thank you i had a great time tyler and adam thank you for making me a guest i would love to come back again and, and talk yeah, with absolutely. you absolutely you got it man hey you have a good night man all right thank you cheers good night <laughs> cheers hey guys that was professor dr schreiber magic historian 
um, historic conjurer, however he, uh, however you want to look at it. This guy knows his stuff. And yeah, I, I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, we learned a lot tonight. I now know a, a ton about magic that I didn't know. And I don't know. I'm just stoked on it now. I'm going to go dig that card out. I'm going to practice my trick and maybe I'll post a video if I get it down. I don't know. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. With that being said, we are putting kind of on the uh, grid wire here with time. So I guess we're just going to wrap things up tonight. But you know where to find us next week, guys. Next week is our 20th episode. Yeah. What? Yes, yeah, 20th episode for us. So we what? are going to be, we're going to be ending season two. And we're probably going to take a little break after that and gather our thoughts and get a new lineup of awesome guests. And maybe Professor D.R. Schreiber will join us for season three. But with that being said, I think we're going to close things up tonight. Uh, As always, this has been Tyler and Adam's Pretentious Podcast. Have a good night. Wait, real quick, right before we leave. Tyler, what's that? What? What's what? It's an amazing interview right behind your ear. Oh, the whole time. Oh, uh, that's amazing. That's Adam. crazy. I wish you would have told me you were going to do I something didn't like know. that. I'm sorry. I thought it was fun. I feel like I ruined oh, the trick. It did. was amazing, it's not guys. A trick. It's an illusion. <laughs> All right, guys. Have a good night. Peace. Bye, y'all.